This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Catholic Review Radio is a weekly radio program and podcast hosted by Catholic Review Media, the news operation of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. We are grateful to our Catholic partners for the opportunity to bring quality Catholic programming to our listeners each week. Welcome to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek, Digital Editor for the Archdiocese of Baltimore and the Catholic Review. There are numerous English language translations of the Bible, but how do you know which one might work best for how you intend to use it? What are the basic types of translations that are out there? Our guest on today's show is Dr. Mark Gieschek, Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Denver-based Augustine Institute. He'll walk us through what the options are and also introduce us to a newly published Catholic edition of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Here's our interview with Dr. Mark Gieschek. Dr. Mark Gieschek, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. Hey, it's great to be with you, George. Good to have you. There are so many pitfalls involved in translating from one language to another. Even in our own time, it's, it's not an easy thing to translate, say, from Spanish to English or Polish to Italian without losing some of the meaning or the context of the original language. It must be even more difficult to translate from an ancient language, such as Hebrew of the Old Testament, especially when you're trying to convey theological ideas across such a great time period of, of thousands of years. Could you explain for our listeners what basic approaches scholars have taken to translating the Bible? Yes. Yeah. So this is a great question. Bible translation is very complicated, and of course it's been going on since very ancient times. Uh, and you're right that scholars have taken a variety of approaches. I think we could think of them in sort of two major categories. Uh, one category would be the desire to translate the words of the Bible as exactly as possible. The other would be to translate the words of the Bible in such a way that they're as meaningful and relevant and clear as possible to a contemporary audience. And there's a kind of ongoing discussion or argument, if you will, among translators about how to do it the right way. And one, one of the biggest voices in Bible translation in the 20th century was an American scholar named Eugene Nida. And he encouraged a, an approach based on linguistics that's often used in uh, other fields of translation uh, that has come to be known as the theory of dynamic equivalence. Or, or functional equivalence. And the idea with dynamic equivalence is that uh, a, a scholar is taking an idea or a phrase or a concept right, out of the original language, and then he's translating from that idea or phrase or concept into the target language. Um, and what that allows is for a much quicker approach to translation, and often a translation that's more relevant, right, or a translation that is easier to understand for the person reading in the receptor language. And so this theory of dynamic equivalence was used for translations like the Good News Bible, but it was also used by a lot of tr Bible translators that were translating the Bible into new languages as a kind of quick way to get the meaning from uh, Hebrew and Greek into the target language. Now, mm -hmm. there's an alternative theory, which is more exacting, right? which is a kind of word-for-word -word approach or formal equivalence. And this, this approach 
it, you know, the, the value in this approach is, you know, we really want the words in the, in the target language, in the receptor language, to be as exact as possible to the, the words in original Hebrew and Greek. Even if it sometimes produces a kind of awkward sounding phrase or a kind of traditional sounding phrase, it might not be at quite as contemporary or, um, or dynamic in terms of its, uh, its use of modern idiom, but right, the, the reader of that more exact translation can trust that the words that they're reading have not been altered, changed, explained, uh, or fixed, if you will, by the translator, but they really are trying to be as faithful as possible to the original languages. And so those two major theories, what you might call phrase-by-phrase phrase or word-for-word style translation as two alternatives, are, are used in a, in a variety of you know, different translations, uh, and, and different translations adopt different levels of exactitude uh, uh, to the original languages. What are some of the most popular English translations in the Bible? Most Americans might be familiar with the, the New American Bible, but what are some of the other ones that are available? Yeah, so uh, fortunately we have a lot of translations available, far more than we used to. English is the most widely spoken language on planet Earth, so it makes sense that we have quite a few Bible translations available. Um, and the traditional Catholic translation uh, that was used in the early 20th century and before was the Douay Reims. So it was translated back in the uh, 1500s and 1600s by Catholic scholars who had moved from England to France. And the Douay Reims was primarily translated from the, the Latin Vulgate. Well, after Pope Pius XII's encyclical letter, Divino Afflante Spiritu, in 1943, uh, Catholic scholars were encouraged to translate directly from the original Greek and Hebrew rather than from the Latin. So that produced uh, what we now know as the New American Bible, which came out in 1970 and has been revised a couple of times. Uh, but there are other translations that came out of that post-1943 effort as well. So the, the, there are basically three families of English translations that are the most widely used among Catholics. Uh, the RSV family, so you'll probably know the RSV, the RSV Second Catholic Edition, uh, the NAB family, which is what we use in the liturgy, the New American Bible, and there's the New American Bible Revised Edition, which came out in 2011. And then there's yet another family uh, called the Jerusalem Bible, and you might have heard, which came out in the 1960s. And then there's the New Jerusalem Bible, and now the Revised New Jerusalem Bible. So I like to think of these as sort of three families of translations. And the, the new translation from the Augustine Institute, the ESV, the English Standard Version, is really part of the RSV family. It's a revision of the, of the RSV, the Revised Standard Version. What kind of advice would you have for someone who's looking at selecting a Bible translation, especially knowing that you have all these different possibilities out there? Before you go and buy one, what, what should you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing to think about is what you're going to be using it for. Right? Are you going to be use the, using this Bible translation primarily for prayer, primarily for following along at Mass, or pr primarily for study? Okay? And so there's going to be a slightly different answer to the question depending on what your use is. So, for example, the U.S. bishops have decided to embrace what's called the Grail Psalter for use in prayer, both at Mass in the uh, Revised Lectionary and uh, in the Liturgy of the Hours. And the Grail Psalter is a special translation of the Psalms that was translated for the purpose of singing and reading out loud in prayer. So it's not quite as exact as some of the other translations of the Psalms, 
but it does make for better uh, poetic uh, expression in English than a lot of the other translations. Whereas if you're going to study the Psalms and you're going to try to understand them in depth and, and you want to get into their vocabulary and, and all of the, the, the words behind the words and so forth, then I would recommend you know, the most exact translation you can find right? that's going to be as close as possible to the original language so that you're able to, to study in depth, look up words, right? and you're going to be able to rely on the translators to convey as much information as possible from the original languages. But of course, if you're going to be at Mass and you're going to be listening to the NAB Revised Edition, well, then that's the Bible you want to have in your hand if you're trying to follow along to the readings, because that's what's being proclaimed from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. What would you say to someone who says, I just don't understand the Bible, I, I, the language is too foreign to me? Like, I, how do you get into the Bible when you're afraid to, to even pick it up to, to get over that fear of, of not understanding it? Yeah, I think uh, one thing to remember is that a lot of the Bible was written uh, for people that were reading in a, in a second language. So in this uh, in this case, I think primarily of the Gospel of John, which is a very simple book in terms of its vocabulary uh, and its concepts. Right, even though it's got very elevated theology, uh, we think of the Apostle John right as a native. Aramaic speaker, right? And he's writing in Greek, right? He's writing in a kind of second language. And so the Gospel of John, even though the concepts are rich and theological and deep and beautiful, in fact, the vocabulary is very, very small. Uh, and so it's very easy to read in that, in that sense. So the Gospel of John, I think, is a great place to begin. The other thing I'd say is, you know, now, oh my goodness, we have such an embarrassment of riches in the, the world of Catholic Bible study. There are so many resources to choose from, whether it be study Bibles, audio programs, video programs, degree programs. There are all sorts of ways in which we can be helped by teachers, right, uh, by books that will help us kind of get into the, the language and world of the Bible. And so I think joining a Bible study program or attending a class or, or even watching some you know, YouTube videos or other online content can be really helpful at kind of getting in the door right, of Scripture. And of course, starting with the Gospels, the New Testament is a great way to begin, and then working your way back into the, the stories of the Old Testament, which can be a little bit more foreign or difficult. I think that's a great way to go. Well, our guest today is Dr. Mark Gieschek, Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the Catholic edition of the English Standard Version of the Bible, which was just published by the Augustine Institute. I'm George Matisek. You're listening to Catholic Review Radio. We'll be back in a moment. Archdiocese of Baltimore makes the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through training and background checks and by implementing a zero-tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese's efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org accountability. Catholic News from the Archdiocese of Baltimore and around the world with the Catholic Review. 
Archbishop William E. Lorry has created a new Institute for Evangelization for the Archdiocese of Baltimore, naming Edward Herrera as its first executive director. The Institute will take over responsibilities of the existing Department of Evangelization. The focus will be done by what are called Emmaus teams for parish renewal, dedicated to helping parishes with the goal of creating missionary disciples among the faithful. The Archbishop said the teams are based on a scriptural idea of sending disciples out in twos. Instead of a multiplicity of bureaucratic offices, he said the new institute will have a dedicated staff, people working with parishes as they undergo the pastoral planning process and as they grow their mission to evangelize. There will be four Emmaus teams of two people each focusing on two areas, renewal and leadership and Catholic mission identity. The existing Office of Pastoral Planning that helps parishes with the planning process launched in 2015 will become part of the Emmaus teams focusing on renewal and leadership. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. Feeding the hungry has become a rallying point for a faith community completing a period of transition. St. Kashmir Parish formally extended its identity New Year's Day when a canonical and civil merger with St. Elizabeth of Hungary in Highlandtown and the former St. Bridget went into effect. The parish will be known as St. Kashmir at Canton and Patterson Park, the latter being the extended front yard of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. St. Elizabeth's food pantry has been in existence for generations. St. Casimir's mission to provide bag lunches to a soup kitchen in Fowles Point is a response to the coronavirus pandemic. In 2017, the three were combined as a pastorate. For more on this story, visit catholicreview.org. From the virtual newsroom of the Catholic Review, I'm Kevin Parks. This is Archbishop William Laurie of Baltimore, and you are listening to Catholic Review Radio. Welcome back to Catholic Review Radio. I'm George Matisek. Our guest today is Dr. Mark Ezek, Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute. The, the Augustine Institute has just published the Catholic edition of the English Standard Version of the Bible. Could you tell us how this project came along? Yeah, so I, I'm really delighted that we're able to offer this new ESV translation in a Catholic edition to an American audience. The ESV is a revision of the RSV that was done by a Protestant publisher originally in 2001 uh, named Crossway Books. And Crossway brought out this this uh, edition of the Bible in 2001, and they've issued a handful of minor uh, updates since then. But it was in 2016 that an Asian publisher from India, an Indian publisher, reached out to Crossway and said, you know, the bishops of India are looking for a new translation for the lectionary yeah, for Mass in India, and we were really interested in using the English Standard Version. And so uh, one thing led to another, and Crossway said yes. And so they had a team of Catholic scholars in India review the whole translation, make a handful of changes. And then the uh, Bishops' Conference of India approved the ESV Catholic edition in 2018 and uh, now mandated it for liturgy. So it was the, the lectionary itself went through a, an additional approval process at the Vatican in December of 2019. Uh, and starting last year on Palm Sunday, uh, the ESV Catholic edition is now the official translation read in the lectionary at every Mass in English uh, in India. Mm. So it's really exciting that uh, we were able to bring this translation, which is sort of a combined American-Indian Catholic-Protestant effort, uh, to uh, the American Catholic audience here at the Augustine Institute. 
What approach does the ESV take? Uh, is it, we talked last segment about translations that are word for word or other translations that are thought for thought or some combination of the two. Can you tell us what approach this translation takes? Yeah, so the the uh, translation philosophy of the ESV is to be as transparent as possible to the original language. So it's really a kind of word-for-word -word approach uh, to the translation task. And I think this is an interesting kind of backstory. In India, before the ESV was approved by the bishops, the bishops actually approved another translation that had originally been Protestant called the New Living Translation. And the New Living Translation is really a kind of paraphrase style translation, very dynamic, very loose, very kind of informal in translation style. And that meant that the New Living Translation wasn't suitable for liturgical use because the Vatican's translation norms, which are in the document Liturgium Authenticum, require a more literal approach to Bible translation uh, than could be provided by that other translation. So the Indian bishops approved the ESV precisely because of its translation philosophy, which emphasized maximum fidelity to the original languages. So the ESV describes itself as essentially literal, and what's great about that from a kind of Bible study standpoint is that the ESV seeks to be consistent in its translation of terms from Hebrew and Greek, and it uses traditional theological terms like grace and justification and other kind of technical terms in theology when it translates into English, rather than kind of avoiding those terms as too difficult or complicated for a contemporary audience. So that makes the, the ESV a great translation to use for study um, and a great translation to use for theological thinking, right, and, and uh, for working through the details of the text. There are so many controversies over translations, and these days especially one of the biggest of those might be the whole issue of gender-neutral language. Uh, what approach does the ESV Catholic Edition take on that issue? Yeah, so the, the, um, the 1990s were a time of great controversy over Bible translation and liturgical translation, particularly in regard to inclusive language, as you mentioned. And this debate was going on both in the Catholic Church and in the Protestant world. Uh, people were debating over the right approach to uh, gendered terms in the Bible. So whether that be terms like man or brothers or men or uh, even things like fathers and sons, uh, there was a lot of controversy over the right way to do this. And some of the translations, like the NRSV, uh, among others, like the New International Version Inclusive Language Edition, uh, pursued a very uh, inclusive approach, right, where they attempted to sort of eliminate as many instances of uh, gender-exclusive language, right, or gender-specific language as possible. One of my favorite examples is in the very first line of the book of Psalms, in Psalm 1, right, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Well, a lot of those translations decided, you know, we're just going to take the man out of there and translate it something like, happy are those who walk not in the counsel of the wicked. And while that feels innocent enough, right, it seems, well, okay, fine. If you go back and read St. Augustine's interpretation of Psalm 1, he views Psalm 1 as a description of Jesus, that Psalm 1 is about the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, right? The righteous man, namely Jesus, and that we're all supposed to be like him. Whereas if you, if you translate that verse inclusively, 
as happy are those or happy are they, all of a sudden the Christological interpretation of that psalm is taken away. So the Vatican instituted these translation norms in 2001 in that document I mentioned earlier, Liturgiam Authenticam, and one of the things that it insisted on is a Christological interpretation of the psalms. So that meant that we couldn't adopt a kind of a fully gender-inclusive approach to translation because that actually eliminates a lot of the Christological elements in the Psalms, but also elsewhere. So one other example might help illustrate the problem of gender-inclusive style translation, and that's this key phrase that we find in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, and in the Gospels. That's the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Mm -hmm. So Jesus comes on the scene and calls himself the Son of Man. Well, in the NRSV, uh, you don't understand what Jesus is talking about because Jesus is referring to a specific passage in uh, Daniel chapter 7 where we see one like a son of man coming on the clouds to the ancient of days seated on the throne. And Jesus is, by calling himself son of man, is referring to that moment in Daniel chapter 7 in Daniel's vision. Well, in the NRSV, that phrase is translated in Daniel 7 as one like a human being. <laughs> so when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in the NRSV, the, the reference is broken, right? You can't see it. It's invisible in the translation. So references like that, I think, are very important and, and make a, uh, a gender-specific style translation like the ESV more helpful in kind of catching the New Testament's allusions to the Old Testament. It's worth saying that the ESV pursued a very rigorous policy regarding inclusive language, which is described in the preface to the ESV. So they go on for a long paragraph describing exactly how they made the choices that, that they made about how to translate terms like brothers and men and so forth. And I think that their goal is to provide the reader with as much information as possible so they can see exactly how the translators are rendering these different terms. And I think it makes for a, a clearer approach to what's going on in Scripture. And I think it allows the, the reader to sort of look through the transparent window, if you will, of the translation back to the original language as clearly as possible. We touched a little bit on our, in our last segment about how people might select a, a translation of the Bible. Uh, once they do that, how would you suggest that people use that Bible? Uh, how should the Bible be read in a way that, that allows for really prayerful reflection? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two ways of thinking about it, uh, right? We use the Bible for prayer, and we use the Bible for study, right? And so uh, the the hope is that our our times of prayer will drive us to study, and our times of study will drive us to prayer, and that the spiritual life and the intellectual life should be mutually beneficial and like cross-pollinating. And so I think that that's a helpful way of thinking about how to read Scripture, right? We don't want to just read it for information or history. We really want to read it for spiritual life, to come into contact with God, right? It's the words of God after all, right? So we want to come to know Him through our reading of sacred Scripture. And I think you know another way of thinking about it is that when we come to read Scripture, we either want to be reading fast or we want to be reading slow. And I think a lot of Catholics are familiar with the practice of Lexio Divina, right? the prayerful reading of sacred scripture, where we read uh, a small portion of scripture very slowly and prayerfully with contemplation and reflection. That's a wonderful thing to do. This is the kind of prayerful reading we do in the chapel, right? 
But it's also appropriate sometimes to read a book of the Bible cover to cover in one sitting. You know, sit down and read the whole Gospel of Mark in one sitting or the whole letter to the Romans, right? And the idea of reading quickly is that we can really start to understand the context of sacred scripture, right? We can really start to see the whole. And then when we come to prayerful reflection or when we hear the readings at Mass, they'll start to cohere more easily in our mind. We'll, we'll know where to sort of place them. This is probably a very unfair question to ask a scripture scholar, but what is your favorite passage from scripture, and, and what is your favorite <laughs> translation of that passage? Well, uh, I suppose it's actually relatively easy for me. I've embedded <laughs> it in my, uh, in, my email, um, uh, in my email signature, right? In Romans 12.12, 12, we read, Rejoice in hope, endure in affliction, and persevere in prayer. And uh, the, tr the translation uh, that I, I like for that particular verse is actually in the New American Bible. And one of my professors at Catholic University of America, Father Francis Gignac, who died a few years ago, God rest his soul, uh, explained to us in class why he decided to translate that verse that way. And essentially what you have there, and this is a little bit geeky, right? You have some participles that are governed by an imperative. So he translates them as imperatives, which I think produces a really powerful translation that's really encouraging to me. Rejoice in hope, endure in affliction, persevere in prayer. These are life lessons that we want to come to embody and, and, and know and live out in Christ. And it's really beautiful. Well, we have about 10 seconds left. Could you tell, tell us how you can get a copy of the SV Catholic edition of the Bible? Yep, you can go to our website, catholicbible.org, and we have a lot of options in paperback, leather, uh, and hardback. That's catholicbible.org. Great. Well, Dr. Mark Isak, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Review Radio. Thank you, George. Our guest today has been Dr. Mark Gieszczak, Associate Professor of Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute. I'm George Matisek. You've been listening to Catholic Review Radio. We'll see you again next week. The Catholic Review is the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the Catholic Church full-time. Pick up the monthly magazine at your parish or have it delivered to your home. Subscribe to our e-newsletter for twice-weekly updates. Just text CR Media to 84576. Follow the Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Read it today in print or online at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. Tune in to Catholic Review Radio next week. Available on WMET 1160 AM and 103.1 FM. Also, WSJF 92.7 FM in the Sykesville area and WVTO 92.7 FM in Baltimore City. Check us out on SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Review Radio. As we prepare for the week ahead, let us do so in prayer together as one community of faith. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let us also ask the blessing and intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless us and keep us always in his love.